Right, welcome everyone to Fazlift's podcast episode 58, I think this is, yes. Right, so it's been a while since I've been on, but I've had a few Q&As building up, so I thought I'd whip these out now. Right, let's begin. So firstly, I'm going to kick off just to, to start talking about why I've been so busy uh, lately and uh, what I've been doing. So this last Monday, today is the 15th. Uh, Monday was the 12th. I launched a free fat loss experience for a private group in Facebook. Um, what I wanted to do was reach out to people in a different way than what I do in Instagram. I think in Instagram, you've probably seen, I've, I've stopped sharing a great deal of useful, as in like uh, informational stuff. I share a lot of results. Um, I share uh, podcasts like this. And every now and again, I'll put up some tidbits. But the thing is, in Instagram, you're kind of limited by the time space. And you're also limited by the type of people who visit Instagram as well. Instagram is, by its very nature, something that you go on to just to scroll through, you know, quickly. It's not something where, which really lends itself well to mass posts. So what I wanted to do was to help people and give people a taste of what I do. Uh, partly, it's sort of motivated selfishly by... Um, by basically trying to increase my outreach to people, you know, showing people who, who are somewhat interested in what I do, a little bit more of my method. So I've been running a fat loss experience and it's a small private group on Facebook, which is just gonna last for two weeks. And within those two weeks, all this, these people, they're getting um, daily modules of information basically on fat loss. And at the moment, it's, uh, it's been going really well. Like everyone seems to be really enjoying it. They're saying they're getting a lot out of it. There's good engagement. Um, and people are really getting an idea for what kind of a coach I am, what I do. So it's been going all right. Uh, it's about uh, four or five days in now, and I might run another one at some point. So if you are interested, just hit me up on that, and uh, I can give you some more details about when I might run another one. But uh, yeah, it's, so far it's been going really well. Had a lot of positive feedback, and um, people seem to be really engaged. And I think it's starting to it's starting to open people's eyes to at least one of the ways that I approach fat loss. So yeah, going all right. Okay. So that's, that is however taking quite a lot of my time just in terms of thinking about it. The actual time uh, I'm dedicating to it isn't a massive amount. It's about say a 20 minute chat in the morning and then about a five or 10 minute chat at night. That's about it per day. But it's quite a good deal for the people involved because they're basically getting, you know, fairly high well what i consider to be high level coaching a couple of times a day for absolutely free all in exchange for a bit of engagement so it's pretty cool it's, it's a good deal for them and hopefully gives them a bit of a bit more information about what i do so we shall see how that goes all right so uh moving on to questions firstly this is a question from sunil what can my generation learn from 80s and 90s bodybuilders i think that's a good question okay so, Sunil's going to be competing in Men's Physique next year. He's going to be doing his first competition. I think there's a lot to be learned from 80s and 90s bodybuilders. And um, so, I, for my money, I would think roughly the, probably the 80s and 90s, more like the 90s, is when we start to see uh, legs, really, really good legs. You know, the sort of the Tom Platts generation. Um, that was one thing we saw. We started to see much bigger physiques. I think by that time, we had computerized nutrition. I, I remember seeing an old Lee Labrador documentary 
about how he was one of the first bodybuilders to use a computer to actually track his calories and his macros to see what he's eating. I know that Yates used a similar system. Um, so I think what we can learn is, let's start with say nutrition. Now, I think we really started to formalize the bodybuilding method in the 80s and 90s, particularly towards the tail end of the 90s when we started to see the mass monsters. So we had an idea of what it took. Now, whether, so we, whether you had what it took is a different question altogether, but we knew what it took to get there. So we knew that it took, a, there was a certain method and a route from A to B. And that route involves eating progressively larger and larger amounts of food. Um, that route involved regular meals. So this idea that meals were spaced roughly three hours apart, that was something we knew. Generally not more often than that, and generally not less often than that. So that was interesting, because that's one of those things where some groups are still sort of questioning that, like, can you do intermittent fasting and still be a professional bodybuilder or still be the best you can be? I would say, unless you're on a reasonable amount of drugs and you're willing to undershoot your potential, I'd say no. I'd say, yeah, you know, you can build a good physique on intermittent fasting. Uh, certainly, you definitely can. Uh, you can build a very good physique, but can you fulfill your own potential? Uh, logically, I'd say no. Um, if you're on drugs, then you've probably got a bit more leeway. And if you are on drugs, telling everyone that intermittent fasting is enough to build your dream physique, then you should probably quiet the fuck down and understand that your perspective is a little bit skewed. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, in the, the whole idea of meal frequency. And then in terms of meal composition, let's have a look at meal composition. We also started to get this idea that protein had to be relatively high. Now, I still think that's true. I still think that's true. Everything in the research seems to point to protein within what a regular normal layperson might consider to be extremely high, but what a bodybuilder would consider to be high to moderately high. So something like a gram per pound is a reasonable start and anything up to about a gram and a half per pound seems to be a good number. So if you're a bodybuilder who weighs about 200 pounds, anywhere between 200 to 300 grams of protein a day is a good amount, you know? And that's gonna require some experimentation. I'd also say it requires some knowing your body. So let's say you're very lean. Like um, there's a friend of mine from uh, Instagram. Uh, he's, he's the guy who lives around here. He's a friend of mine, Dan. Recently, he switched to eating a lot more carbs and that worked well to gain some weight for him because it meant that because he was eating so much protein before, he was, just, he was just burning through it all. It wasn't really sticking to him. And we know from the thermic effect of protein, that's, that's probably the reason why. Uh, so he lowered his protein intake, raised his carb intake, and he started gaining weight again. You know, so it makes sense. So with regards to protein intake, you've got to tailor that protein intake a little bit. And it might not necessarily be scientifically accurate, but we're talking about what actually works here. So coming out of a diet, for example, odds are your protein is going to be a lot higher to enable you to eat more, just to make sure you don't go nuts and out of your mind. So, you know, it's all well and good having this like um, free and easy, like eat what you like, just fit it in your macros approach. But I don't personally think that's optimal. And a lot of bodybuilders have been doing this this way for a long time because that usually leaves you open to quite a lot of nutritional gaps. It can leave you open to being very hungry. And you can preempt a lot of these things. Like if you've got a diet laid out where your protein is super high to increase satiety 
and to fulfill nutrient requirements to have lots of vegetables as well you can have a reasonable amount of food and still be full throughout the course of the day now you might not necessarily get that with an if it fits your macros approach so again i i think if we're talking about what we can learn from 80s and 90s bodybuilders a fair a relatively rigidly meal plan which focuses on moderate to high protein certainly a good thing after that we're looking at large and large amounts of veg and rice and potatoes and pasta and stuff like that in terms of macros you're looking at fairly high carbs and relatively low to moderate fats that seems to be the bodybuilder diet so that's certainly one thing so i think diet what we're looking at is consistency in diet and trying to eat a lot of food so yeah that's that's what the 80s and 90s did very well it was very sort of robotic and now if i look at what most successful bodybuilders are doing that's pretty much what they're doing i think if you're doing things in any other way i'd like to know who is like i'd like to know who is doing things in like a, a massively different way every now and again you get a bodybuilder who comes up saying that they, they they're eating keto and that's fine i guess but we're talking about broad strokes if something if something is is been known to work like you know if something we if we want to be able to say that something works we have to be able to say it works for the large majority of people we can't just say it works because the exception proves the rule so that's not <laughs> that's that doesn't, that doesn't make sense you know um so like if if you got a room of 100 people yep and something works for one person but it does not work for 99 other people we can't say well that's a good approach because it works <laughs> well that, yeah it's got to work for the majority of people right and then we can stamp a steal of approval and say it works any other approach we've got to say okay we've got to be a bit more careful about that so while i understand the if it fits your macros crew coming in and chiming in and saying well you know bodybuilding is disordered blah 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 um and you should eat what you like when you like it's like oh i honestly get fucking tired of that sometimes it's like that yeah yeah maybe if it works for you and perhaps if you come from a disordered eating background where you purposely under eat then or, you know when you've done that and you've had that in your past maybe that works for you then because but you've got to recognize you've got to be intelligent enough at that point to recognize that that is part of your natural bias so i think you've got to be true to yourself with the approach that you take so if that means it's an if it fits your macros approach great but if we look if we're currently talking about people who perhaps struggle with keeping lean then perhaps they need to be a little bit stricter if we're talking about people who have struggled with being too strict then yeah perhaps they need to be a bit more loose but I think you've got to be intelligent enough to recognize where you lie in that spectrum and not just how your approach as the one approach to go for, particularly if you're saying it to the wrong audience. So I think you've got to be aware of that. I think there are too many people out there who, are, who do that these days and it can be quite damaging. So in terms of what we can learn from 80s and 90s bodybuilders, yeah, I think this idea that there's a certain way of doing things, but I would also encourage people to go off plan. I, like, I think the idea of cheap meals and free meals is a pretty good one. I used to be dead set against that, um, but I've, this is probably something where I've changed my mind on recently. I'd say, I don't, and also I'll say this up front, I, I don't think calling a cheat meal a cheat meal is inherently bad. I think that's just a, I, I saw, a, who was it? I saw Jordan Siat say that recently. He said, he said something just, this, oh God, I really dislike that guy. He's just so full of shit. He said something like, um, dear fitness professionals, stop calling a cheat meal a cheat meal, a cheat meal's bad for you or something like that. And like, fuck's sake, dude. If you just, just a name isn't going to change how you react to it, you know? Like whether you call it a cheat meal or a free meal, 
It's how you react to it that actually determines whether it's damaging to you or not. Not in the fucking name. Like if I have a massive 3,000 calorie splurge on a Saturday night and I say, it's okay, guys, it was a free meal, doesn't automatically make it okay, does it? So this is how I know Jordan's full of shit. Like he's made, he's made a very good career for himself just by, just by saying these trite quotes, which, you know, it sound very agreeable, but if you actually look into them, they're just full of shit and they just betray how little he actually knows about the topic. It's just very much a mass appeal, like appeal to the dumbest, uh, the lowest common denominator, which is usually the, the, a very, a, a nice, simple, dumb phrase. So, and conversely, you know, if you have a, Three, uh, a 1,000 or 500 calorie meal on a Saturday night and you call it a cheat meal, does that mean you're disordered? Well, no, it doesn't. The name, whatever you call it, doesn't make a damn bite, a bit of difference. It's how you react to it. Every piece of literature will tell you that. It's your, it's your associations to that meal. Now, that can involve the name, but not always. So dumbing it down to the name is just not accurate. So Jordan can go fuck himself. Now, if we go on to training, what can my generation learn from 80s and 90s bodybuilders? Uh, training, I think, well, I'm not sure there's that much that's different now. I think there's a lot more focus. There's still, you've still got the, the various strands of training. I think you've still got your high volume guys. You've still got your high intensity guys. They're all still there. Um, again, whatever, wherever you sit on that spectrum, I think you've got to understand that the higher volume approach is the more popular one for the most part, for the most part. And I think you've got to understand where, how to put this, you've got to understand where you sit in the spectrum of what's appropriate for people. So at the very, very high ends, your volume is naturally going to come down because you're just going to be so, so strong. It's a rare, rare top end lifter that does a lot of volume. They mostly do. And if they do a lot of volume, it's t it tends to be of the type where it's sort of, um, it, it the, the volume leads up to something a little bit um, like a one or two main sets. So it's, it's sort of like, they'll call it high volume, but the reality is out of the six sets they do of an exercise, about four of them are warm-ups, <laughs> but they'll just say they did six sets. Uh, Fuad Abiyad made a point about this on his podcast recently about the, there's, there's not really a massive amount of practical difference between the way like a Dorian might train compared to the way that he might train because what he calls feeler sets, Dorian would call warm sets. And I've trained with guys who train with Dorian and that's pretty much how they work. Like their warm-ups are more intensive than most people's to be fair. They warm up with a lot of purpose. Um, it's just, you don't really call them feeler sets. We didn't really call those feeler sets because they're effectively warm sets. Like, why would you differentiate a feeler set from a warm-up set? That doesn't make any sense in my mind. Like it's still a set with less weight than your max. It's still a set working up to your max so for the day. So I don't really get that, but I understand that people want to put a label on things. That's fine. But essentially most people's volume when they're very, very strong works out to be about the same. Like nobody's doing set after set after crushing set at say 180 uh, kilo on the incline. That just doesn't happen. Now, in terms of the rest of it, I think you should be doing enough volume if you're an intermediate to a beginner to actually elicit a change, whatever that is for you. And generally, if you're not getting a change and everything else is in place, like your diet, your food, you're gaining weight, you're just perhaps gaining weight perhaps too fast or you're gaining a worse rate of fat to muscle, but you're just gaining weight at a reasonable pace, odds are you probably need more volume. 
if you're not able to get consistently stronger week to week, probably are probably there's only two choices really, isn't there? You're either doing too much or you're doing too little. For most people, they're doing too little these days. I think that was probably the opposite case, like maybe a few decades ago, people would make the mistake of training too much. But nowadays, I don't really see anyone in the gym training too much. Uh, it's more a case, more likely that they're going to be training too little. At least that's what I see in the UK. You guys in America who are listening, you might have a different experience of that. All right, so yeah, that's a little bit of what I'd say you can learn from 80s and 90s bodybuilders. Uh, emphasis on the basics, what works for most people. Start with that and then try and explore alternatives. And I think that's probably a good rule of thumb for everything in life, really. Start with what works for the majority. Assume that you are the majority. Don't assume you're a special case. And then if that doesn't work, then look at ways of refining it. Look at ways of, look at outliers. But in the first sense, you should probably do what works for most people. All right. That's, that's a good way, at least, of determining that it doesn't work for you. But odds are you probably fit in the realm of most people. And this, this goes for most things in life. All right, next. Brief explain basics of men's physique. Okay. So if we start with competition day, and we'll kind of work backwards. On the competition day, I would say you've got to make sure you give yourself enough time to get tanned and glazed. That's very important. And make sure you pump up correctly on the day. Now, pumping up correctly on the day means not overworking your muscles. I would probably, I would recommend something like a set of bands and a couple of dumbbells. You can do quite a lot with that. So I would generally advise doing a circuit of chest, back, shoulder, and arm work, and then repeat that circuit. Also ab work as well. You want to have, you want to make sure the abs have got a bit of a pump going in and then repeat that a few times. I wouldn't necessarily pump up one muscle group in isolation. I would do a whole circuit, repeat it two or three times. And then at that stage, when you maybe got a bit of a sweat on, that's when you go and get your final glaze and you go on stage. At that stage also beginning, before you do that pump up, that's probably when you want to take in some sweets, some sh something to do with something sugars, um, just to give yourself a little bit more sugar before you go on stage. That should feed into your prep plan. Now, the week before, I think a lot of people fuck this up. <laughs> like so many people fuck up the week before. So many people try and get cute. Like you've got guys on a regional level trying to emulate peak protocols that world champions use and just and fucking it up. And it's beyond belief. Like, why would you do a 2016 eight week prep, whatever you're prepping for, and then just fuck it up on the final week because you're trying to emulate some sort of mythical peak? Like, you don't have to do it. I've seen so many guys fuck it up and I've seen the same people fuck it up so many times that it's just beyond belief. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, my general advice for that is know your body. Like I'm not going to talk about how I prep people on this, on this show. Um, but I think there's three broad categories of prep, I would say. And the one that most people tend to struggle with and fuck up the most is loading. So carving up, directly prior to the competition so within 24 hours of the competition that is the one that most people think is the standard carb up like carb up on the day before the show that's the standard advice and that is the most dangerous of the three protocols you could use the three broad categories you could use but that is the one that most people use so if you're sat there listening think hey 
that's what I use. <laughs> and I fucked up my last competition too. <laughs> it's like, well, dumbass, maybe don't then, you know, like there are many ways to prep. And if your, if your coach only knows that one way and he keeps fucking you over on it, maybe drop your coach. Maybe they're not as good as you might think. Get somebody who actually knows what they're doing. So roughly speaking, I'd say there's probably a couple of more broad ways of doing it. Um, which are safer and more guaranteed to pull you in better. And if your only tool is one that always has you either looking, looking flat or looking spilled over, then just, you know what? Just, yeah. Hire a new coach. Well, at the very least sack that one. Um, that, that's not going out to anyone in particular, but I just see it a lot. So yeah, so that's the peak week. Prior to that, I think you, you should have had an off-season of trying to gain as much muscle as possible uh, in the right areas. Yes, it is men's physique, but even at the regional level on men's physique, in my experience, they reward muscularity. You know, they do. Um, like, it is about aesthetics, but a large portion, not all of it, but a large portion of aesthetics is how much muscle you can slap onto your frame. Muscle well-placed is aesthetic. A secondary proportion to that is how you're built, like your insertions, your waist to clavicle ratio, all that kind of stuff. But in general, you can't really go wrong by adding more muscle, particularly at the regional level when most people are under-muscled. So you should have had a long off-season where you've tried to put on as much possible in the, in the big areas. I would, I would say as well, make sure you're still training your legs. You know, unless your legs are absolutely dominant, you should still be training them, even as men's physique competitor. So yeah, kind of working backwards, that's kind of what I would say. And one final thing, which is true for right the way through off-season to in-season, is make sure you're practicing your posing. And just understand that the posing in your off-season will look different to posing uh, pre-competition. So there's that. I'd also say possibly, and this applies for, for everyone really, um, whether it's men's physique or bodybuilding or whatever, try not to get too fat, you know? I don't really think it's necessary to be getting over 15% body fat in the off season. Um, don't think you need to do that. For the most people, they can hit a ceiling at about 15% and then start to diet down. Now, let's say, for example, you, you hit a show or you got really shredded and within like two months, you are, you've bounced back up 10 kilos. <laughs> like you've got to just, you've got to get back on your diet at that stage, basically. <laughs> like, or if you've gone back up to 15%, maybe not 10 kilos, but let's say you've rebounded back to 15% or whatever. You've got to get back on the diet at that stage. Like, if you carry on at that stage, that's that's not going to really go anywhere good for most people. Again, speaking broad averages, there are a few people out there who who are going to be able to, you know, gain quite a lot, and they have the reasons for doing so. I mean, if your maintenance intake is just so low that it's not really comfortable to stay like that in the off season, then sure, just carry on getting bigger. Why not? Um, but for the most people, if we're looking at how to run effective off seasons, I would say. Make sure you're not getting overly fat. When you do, maintain for a while, come back down, and then start the building process again. And also, another thing I'd say is you don't have to compete every year. Like It's not necessary to compete every single year. It sounds kind of cool, and it makes you sound like a pro bodybuilder when you talk about you know, like the off-season and the competition prep and all that kind of stuff, but you don't need to compete every single year. Um, I, I'd say for the, for the building, for the person who's sort of building up their physique, maybe once every couple of years is a reasonable idea. Get the first one out of the way and then have a long period where you're gaining a lot of muscle. All right, so the next thing is I'm going to go over a couple of questions which were asked and they were addressed on my 
Instagram stories, but I'm going to go ahead and talk through them anyway. First one is uh, from Nick. Is the calorie at 8 a.m. same as the calorie at 8 p.m.? So I wanted to go over this again because I wanted to give a slightly more nuanced answer than I gave on Instagram because like most things, there's no black and white, yes or no. Now, in the context of a regular diet where you're mostly eating a, a similar amount of food um, throughout the, the day, you know, I'd say that there's no difference. For most people, for, for the large majority of people, there's no difference. However, what I will say is this, that nutrient timing is a thing. Right? At the highest levels, you should really be paying attention, some sort of attention to nutrient timing. Now, that could involve trying to leverage more of the day's carbs peri-workout, so around your workout. I think it's a positive idea. I think it's a good idea for most people. We have had some studies recently which have called that into question, but I think overwhelmingly that's still a good idea. You should try and be full, particularly if you're depleting yourself at other points of the week, or particularly if you're just very big. So I would, in that sense, the calorie at 8 a.m. versus the calorie at 8 p.m. turns a little bit on its head. So there's a couple of factors. One, nutrient timing is a thing for performance. The other thing is nutrient timing is still is a thing for sleep as well. Some people find they sleep better and they are more productive if they have more of the food later on at night. So then a calorie at 8 p.m. becomes a little bit more valuable. It doesn't change in terms of for what it gives your body, but it becomes a bit more valuable because it helps you sleep. And overall, good sleep means good things. Another thing is um, a lot of people often don't get along that well with a very heavy start to the day, like a very heavy breakfast at the beginning of the day. A short, sharp, quick breakfast, and then they're going, tends to be a better deal for most people. So again, that's that's another one. And some people are the opposite. Some people prefer a lot, a lot heavier breakfast and then tapering off towards the end of the day. So it varies. So I think once we get, once we move past the a calorie is a calorie um, maxim, which is definitely true, we can't get around that. And for the large majority of people, just getting to that point and away from the fads, fad diets and bullshit that's out there is a step in the right direction. But once you're at that level and you've been there for a while and you've got a good consistent amount of food and you know, all that kind of stuff, I think then, and also you acknowledge that calorie balance is king, I think then you can start to look at other things like nutrient timing, uh, meal composition, macro composition, micronutrition, and all that kind of stuff starts to become a little bit more relevant. But uh, yeah, for the majority of people, the answer is still yes, it's the same. Next question was fasted cardio. I did give some nuance on this because I think a lot of diet coaches, a lot of nutrition coaches just still are on, like just still say no, like it's nonsense. Like fasted cardio is rubbish, no difference, do it when you like. And it becomes very sort of like, clicky and fashionable to emphasize how stupid people are that way who say that fasted cardio makes a difference and pointing out studies and all that kind of stuff but the thing is that a lot of people who do stuff like that, who say that like who find it very trendy to say fasted cardio is rubbish probably the jordan seats of the world probably say that as well <laughs> it, it just shows that they don't actually know a great deal about how the body works like there are certain situations where you can leverage greater fat loss with fasted cardio there are certain protocols, which I'm not going to get into the, in this uh, podcast, but there are certain things you can do um, to make sure you set your body up in an environment to preferentially burn more fat via fasted cardio. Now, just because you are sat there as a coach and you don't know those methods doesn't mean they don't fucking exist. So rather than proudly display your ignorance and call everyone else idiots, just have, 
know your fucking role and just calm yourself for a second and understand that there are ways of doing that and they do exist and it is possible so you can preferentially burn more fat with fasted cardio if you set it up correctly so that's my final word on that and that will be podcast 58 all right thanks for listening everyone